know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing Liesl Memminger from the novel The Book Thief. And this topic was a patron request from patron Mark. So thank you, Mark, for uh, suggesting this. And also, thank you for a little bit of patience as uh, this was a longer book. And so we would have done it last month, but uh, we ended up sliding in a discussion about two short stories while we were both still working through The Book Thief. Just a little bit of uh, info here. The Book Thief was published in 2005. It was written by Marcus Zusak, and it's the story of a young girl who's growing up in Nazi Germany, and she likes to read books and sometimes steal them. <laughs> she doesn't have ready access to books uh, in her everyday life, so she finds access. Yeah. <laughs> My kids and I have had very interesting conversations about, um, uh, about theft and uh and books because i've been reading this book they're, they're fascinated by the title <laughs> well maybe maybe when we get to our, our deeper discussion you can share uh where you've landed in discussing that with them so uh listeners if you are not familiar with the book thief now is your chance to become more familiar it uh however i'm guessing many of you are because the book Thief is an international bestseller. It has sold more than 10 million copies and it has spent more than 500 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, which is a strong run, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for its 10th anniversary, I'm guessing sales were lagging, you know, after their 500 weeks. So for the 10th anniversary, the publisher released a new version with 30 plus pages of bonus content. And this included, let's see, manuscript pages, original sketches from the author, pages from Zuzak's uh, writing notebook when he was um, drafting this, and also a letter from the author. And uh, let's see. What is his first name again? Marcus. Marcus Zuzak. Sorry. Uh, Marcus Zuzak is an Australian writer. And before The Book Thief, he had another international bestseller or young adult novel that was titled Messenger. Well, it was titled Messenger in Australia. In the United States, it was called I Am the Messenger. I'm not 100% sure why it was a change. Maybe <laughs> rights. Maybe there was a book published here called Messenger. I don't know. Um, but he has not published a book since The Book Thief. Um, which, as we said, was in uh, 2005. He has said he is working on another book, but has not come out yet. And he the probably book doesn't. Need- it- yeah, 500 weeks on the bestseller list. I think you can ride that for a little while. And in addition to that sweet, sweet bestseller list money, uh, the book Thief was adapted into a film in 2013. So I had some of those uh, adaptation royalties coming his way too. 
uh, I saw the film before I read the book. Um, and my wife had the book, actually. She had read it before we got married and she owned it. And after the film, I liked it enough. Like, I liked the film enough that I went and read the book. And then I re... Uh, well, I actually listened to an audiobook version of it for this discussion uh, today. And I quite liked the film adaptation. Um, I thought the cast was really good. Um, I had no expectations for what the plot was going to be because I hadn't read the book um, beforehand. Uh, but it only has a 46% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I disagree with that. <laughs> um, the film's score was written by John Williams and was nominated for all the soundtrack awards. But that was mostly the only awards the film was nominated for was um, the John Williams score, which I think anytime you get a John Williams score, you can just pencil in at least nominations, right? Yeah. For, yep. for soundtrack. Yeah, he's pretty good at what uh, he does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to share a couple quotes that I found um, an interview with Marcus Zuzak on the 10th anniversary. Um, and this is from a website called bookpage.com. And they did an interview with Marcus Zuzak. And there were a couple quotes that I enjoyed. And um, he was asked in this interview, how did having a huge bestseller change the course of your career as a writer? And he said, I think it's just giving me more time. And that's a great thing in some ways, but detrimental in others. I still haven't finished the next book after The Book Thief, but that might have been the case, even if it wasn't successful. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe having a bestseller changes everything around the writing, but not so much the writing itself. It's just still it's still just you and the open page. And I liked that uh, last thought there <laughs> when it comes to writing. Uh, and then another quote that I enjoyed from this interview, uh, the interviewer quoted Ruta Sepetis, uh, who is quoted as saying that she doesn't know that her books are, are uh, she doesn't know what her books are about until her readers tell her. And the interviewer asked, are you still getting feedback from readers that changes or challenges your own perception of the book, even after so much time? And uh, and he said, for me, it's more the case that you learn about the book as you write it. You learn what needs to stay, what needs to go, and you learn what it's about thematically. In the case of The Book Thief, it was by chance that Liesl would steal books. I'd started writing a book about a girl stealing books in modern day Sydney, Australia, and thought, what if I just put that idea into that book I'm setting in Nazi Germany? The same went for the idea of using death as a narrator. The significance of those things grew in the writing, and more meaning it does come through the more you talk about it. These days, I've realized that The Book Thief is about the stories we read and write, but especially the stories we make. And uh, that is what I had for the trivia there. So, Todd, uh, I, uh, we may have jumped over this part, but usually we talk about how we came to it. Had you read this before uh, prep preparing for this recording? No, I, I had heard uh, about it. Just I knew that there was a book called The Book Thief that tons of people really liked. And then there was a movie that a lot of people really liked. Um, I had not engaged with either of them until this uh, the podcast. And <clears throat> I, I read through the book uh, really pretty quickly. I read it in like four days or something this week. Um, so, and it, 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 it was nice. I, I kind of like sometimes, sometimes it's nice to take your time with a book and sometimes it's nice to just kind of blow through one. Um, and this one, uh, I went through pretty quickly and I really liked it. And, but I, but I definitely have some thoughts. I'm super excited for our conversation. Um, I don't know if this has happened to you, Todd, but sometimes doing this podcast when we are engaging with so much media, I end up with sense memories around certain topics that we've covered so mm -hmm. for example when we did the novel the rook um i was listening to that as an audiobook through audible and there was when we had uh we started this podcast basically right when my wife and i moved into our house as we had changed careers and changed cities we moved into this house and there was this overgrown rose bush in one corner of the yard that had bothered me since we moved in and while listening to the rook i tore out that rose bush entirely <laughs> and now anytime i walk past that part of the yard i 
like get a sense memory of listening uh-huh. to the rook while I was doing work there. And uh, this last week, uh, we are doing a, a small remodel of an unfinished storeroom in our basement. And while I was putting up drywall and mudding the drywall, I was listening to the book thief and already like walking into that room since then. Yeah. I can tell you, I'm going to have some sense memories of the book thief in that room. Yeah, I definitely have, interestingly enough, um, really strong sense memories with the rook. Um, I don't know. Time will tell on this one. I, uh, yeah, I, I have, I, I'm super excited to talk about this. I don't want to say anything until you're done with the, uh, with the long synopsis, but, um, yeah, I've got, I've got thoughts. Um, but before you get to that long synopsis, uh, we just want to thank all of you listeners uh, for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and talk about our fantasy box office uh, game, which Joe is now winning by over a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now we'll move to the long synopsis. My, my billion dollar lead is not going to hold in the fantasy box office, Todd. You have Star Wars A New Hope coming your way. I mean, it's Star Wars Solo, but for you, it's A New Hope in the <laughs> for fantasy box. <laughs> for me, it is A New Hope. And uh, pre-ticket sales are pretty good on Solo, I, th- I hear. Yeah, yeah, I think you're going to close that billion dollar gap pretty quickly. All right. Well, here is the full spoiler synopsis of The Book Thief. Uh, you should know this book is narrated by Death, like the, the entity of Death. And Death tells us that he has seen The Book Thief three times. And the third time he saw her drop a book and he picked it up and has read it. Now we jump back to seeing Liesel, The Book Thief, as a nine-year-old girl sitting on a train in Germany during the rise of the Nazi party. She's riding with her mom and her brother when her brother calls violently and then dies. This is her younger brother. This is the first time that Death sees Liesel. While Liesel and her mom wait for her brother to be buried, Liesel, who can't read, picks up a book that she sees near her brother's grave, and she keeps it. This is her first stolen book. Her mother, uh, who is sick, finishes the journey with Liesel and uh, drops her off, and uh, Liesel is now moving in with foster parents. Um, Liesel's dad is out of the picture. We're not sure why. Her mom seems to be struggling, and so she's moving in with these foster parents who are an older couple named Hans and Rosa uh, Huberman. And the Ubermans are pretty poor. Hans is a house painter who plays the accordion and is kind to Liesel, but in kind of a quiet way. Rosa washes laundry and is fairly harsh in her expectations of Liesel's behavior. Uh, Liesel has fairly nightmares. Harsh? <laughs> <laughs> she just constantly berates her and swears at her. Yeah. <laughs> like every time she opens her mouth. Uh, yes. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, Rosa washes laundry. Oh, uh, let's see. Sorry. Um, at night, Liesel has nightmares about seeing her brother die, and she often wakes up crying, and Hans is the one who comes and comforts her. Liesel goes to school, but has to study with younger kids because she hasn't had much formal education. A neighbor boy her age named Rudy becomes her friend. Rudy is known for the Jesse Owens incident from a little before Liesel came into town. You see, Rudy is uh, was and is obsessed with Jesse Owens and his success in the Berlin Olympics, and one night, he covered himself in charcoal and ash and pretended to run races down the street until his father caught him and scolded him and uh, Rudy and Liesel become friends and Rudy starts asking Liesel for a kiss but she insists it won't happen as long as they live one night after being forced to join uh, the Hitler youth uh, organization Liesel has a particularly bad nightmare when Hans is comforting her he sees the book she stole from her brother's grave and it's called the grave diggers handbook 
and he realizes she can't read. And now when she wakes up from her nightmares, uh, he takes time to begin teaching her how to read. So pretty much every night they have a little um, reading lesson happening. For Christmas, Liesl is given two books that Hans traded cigarettes for. Her reading is getting better because war is approaching. The people around town are spending less money uh, and Rosa begins losing clients for her laundry washing that she does. So she starts lending Liesl out alone to pick up and return the laundry, hoping that people will feel too guilty about firing a child. So that's, she's like, I know they'll fire me because no one likes me, but I'm going to send Liesl out. For homework at school, Liesl is supposed to write a letter and she starts writing letters to her mom, but she never receives any answers. And a social worker comes to Liesl that they have, um, <clears throat> let's just say, lost contact with her mother. Uh, but Liesl still keeps hope that she's going to hear from her. There is a big celebration for Hitler's birthday and the Ubermans adult son and daughter come home and Hans and his son argue about Hitler. Hans has painted over slurs painted on the doors of Jewish run businesses. And meanwhile, his son is a member of the Nazi party. Uh, the celebration includes a Hitler youth march and then a book bonfire during speeches by Nazi leaders. Liesl hears the word communist said very negatively several times, and it connects with some memory she has of her father. And she begins to connect the rise of Hitler and Nazis with her family's trauma and her father being taken away. Liesl tells Hans that she hates Hitler. This is, uh, you know, after the party's kind of dispersed and she realizes that the Nazis probably took her father. Liesl tells Hans that she hates Hitler and Hans slaps her right there in the street and tells her that she is never allowed to say that in public. Um, and as the book bonfire is dying down, Liesl sees an unburnt book called The Shoulder Shrug and she steals it. She thinks someone saw her steal it and she realizes that it was the mayor's wife, Ilsa. Rosa does the mayor's laundry, and now Lisa is scared to go deliver or pick up laundry from the mayor's house. But when she finally does go, Ilsa invites Liesl into the house and shows her their library. Think Beauty and the Beast kind of library. <laughs> like a room, floor to ceiling, books lining every single wall. The story um, now jumps to another German city where there's a 19-year-old man named Max hiding in a dark room, and he is starving, and he's scared to move and make any sounds. Um, a man comes by and brings him a small supply of food and tells him to wait some more, and Max stays in this dark hole of a room. Liesl and Hans are slowly reading The Shoulder Shrug, which has a Jewish protagonist, which is why it was put into the bonfire. Liesl is getting better at reading, and now when she goes to the mayor's house for laundry, she gets to stay and read on the floor of the library. She notices that one of the books has the name Johan written inside of it, and Ilsa says that was her son who died in World War I. Ilsa is still clearly quite depressed about this, um, uh, about the loss of her son. Because of um, the the new war, though, nobody has enough money, and Rudy and Liesl end up going along with some other kids to steal apples from an orchard. And after they successfully um, steal a lot of apples, Liesl eats six of them and is sick all night long. Uh, Liesl and Max get better at stealing food, and sometimes they also find money or sell their stolen food, and they get a little cash in hand, and they immediately blow that money on candy at the local store every time. We cut back to Max in his room and the man returns and gives him a copy of Mein Kampf, which has a key and an identity card inside of it. Max travels with that book and this ID card and makes his way to the Ubermann's house. We find out that in World War I, Hans Ubermann's life was saved by an accordion playing Jew named Eric. Eric died in the war and Hans visited his family to try and return uh, his accordion. Eric's widow told Hans to keep the accordion and Hans said he would help the family if they ever needed it. This is one reason why Hans has been helping Jewish store owners who have been vandalized. He paints over um, the graffiti on their on their stores but when uh he finds hans finds out that other germans won't hire him unless he joins the nazi party he finally does submit an application but uh after doing this he sees even more anti-semitic graffiti and he goes and punches out the window of the nazi headquarters which puts his membership application on hold <laughs> 
<laughs> now we jump back to the present and we find out that Max, this uh, man who has traveled to the Orin's house, is Eric's son. And Hans takes him in and um, there's this great moment of tension in the story where you wait to see what Rose's reaction is going to be and she just immediately feeds him some soup and helps hide him in the basement. Like, there's there's no big fight about this yeah, or anything. So cool. Uh, Liesl is warned that she can never speak of Max, the um, Jewish man that they're hiding in the basement. In the winter, they discover that the basement is just too cold for Max, so he comes up at night and sleeps by the fire, but then he goes back and spends the entire day in the basement. Max and Liesl bond over their shared nightmares. Max, because of what's happening and what has happened to his family, and Liesl over what happened to her brother. And they talk about these things. For Liesl's birthday, Max paints over pages of Mein Kampf and writes a story on those pages for Liesl. I love that painting over Mein Kampf. Um, Our narrator death announces that Rudy is going to die in two years. Liesl keeps reading the mayor uh, reading at the mayor's library. She finds newspapers in the trash to take to Max and Max fantasizes about a boxing match with Hitler. Uh, Rosa has been losing more and more customers. And when Liesl visits the mayor's house, Ilsa gives her a letter for Rosa saying that they cannot afford to send out their laundry anymore. Uh, uh, Ilsa, offers to let Liesl take the book that she's been reading and also says that Liesl can come and read anytime in the library. But Liesl loses it. (laughs) She screams at the mayor's wife telling her that it's time she gets over her son's death. She throws the book back at the mayor's wife and she storms off. Rudy um, has been having to attend um, Nazi youth leadership meetings, uh, but he keeps standing up for kids who are struggling. So he keeps getting punished with extra push-ups and extra running. Uh, The Nazi youth leader keeps picking on Rudy and to cheer him up, Liesl offers to go with him to the mayor's house to steal food. But when they get there, she finds the library window open and so she goes in and steals a book called The Whistler instead of going to find food. Later on, Rudy runs into his youth leader who's always picking on him and that leader asks when Hitler's birthday is and Rudy pretends not to know the answer. So the youth leader holds Rudy down and cuts his hair with a knife and Rudy quits the Nazi youth meeting, quits going to that one. Um, Another bully sees Rudy and Liesl walking and Liesl's holding the book that she stole from the mayor's library and that bully takes it and throws it in the icy river. Rudy dives in and rescues it and he tries to claim a kiss from Liesl as a prize, but he has no luck there. It's just been a a rough little patch for Liesl and Rudy at this point. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, Oh, yeah. On Christmas Eve, it's snowing and Liesl brings in snow to show Max in the basement. And then he's so excited about this that she goes and brings in more snow and they build a snowman in the basement. A few days later, though, Max gets sick, really sick, so sick that the narrator of the book, Death, comes by to visit Max. Uh, But before he can take his soul, he realizes it's not time yet. Uh, Liesl hears Rosa saying that the snowman in the basement made Max sick. And so Liesl blames herself. Max is in a coma and Liesl reads to him every day, but she runs out of books to read to him. So she goes back to the mayor's house and steals another one. This one called the dream catcher. One day at school, um, Rosa shows up and she asks for Liesl and she loudly chews her out like in the hallway, just so everyone here, she yells at her for using Rosa's hairbrush. And, but then just before she lets uh, Liesl go back into the classroom, she leans over and whispers that Max has woken up. So now Liesl is very ecstatic. Max recovers, but Rosa wonders uh, what they would have done with the body if the boy had died. The war turns a bit against Germany and Nazis begin uh, inspecting everyone's basements to see if they're large enough to act as bomb shelters. (laughs) Because that wasn't a concern early on when they were the aggressors. But now they're like, we might need some local bomb shelters. Uh, Liesl sees the Nazi officials coming and knows Max is in her basement. So she fakes an injury in the street soccer game she's playing with Rudy. And she runs home or gets home in time to warn her family. But the Nazi officials are right behind her, so they don't actually have time to do anything. The officials go into the basement. 
And after a tense few minutes, they come up simply saying that it's not deep enough. And then the officials leave. Max had hidden successfully. Um, as people in town are worried about bombings, Hans gets more jobs for painting blinds and blacking out windows. But he, uh, most people don't have money. So he barters for food, alcohol, and cigarettes. There is an upcoming Hitler Youth Carnival, and uh, there's going to be races, and Rudy wants to win four races, just like Jesse Owens at the Olympics. He wins his first three races, but false starts twice in his fourth race and is disqualified. Afterwards, he tells Liesl he false started on purpose, and she can't quite figure out why. Liesl steals another book from the mayor's library, um, and a while later, Rudy notices that there's a book actually being used to prop open the library window at the mayor's house. And Liesl runs up and steals that book. And it's a dictionary with a note from the mayor's wife, giving Liesl permission to keep stealing books, but inviting her to use the front door. (laughs) One night, the bomb sirens go off and the Ubermans go to a neighbor's house, which had the deep enough basement to be approved as a bomb shelter, but they have to leave Max hidden in their house. In the bomb shelter, things are tense. Uh, But while they're down there, Max sneaks out uh, to see the night sky which he has not seen since he came there. I think it says two years ago at this point, Uh, but there's no bombing that night. Uh, But periodically there are more air raid sirens during the next one. um, Everyone is again, tensed down in the bomb shelter and Liesl reads out loud from the whistler and everyone in the bomb shelter calmly listens. Like everyone, it calms everyone down to hear her reading and a neighbor who has had a long running feud with Rosa comes by. And this is like the first time in years and years that, She's had a conversation with Rosa and she wants to ask if Liesl will come to her and read in the afternoons and this neighbor offers some of her rations in return. Uh, later on, the Nazis march a group of Jews through town and Hans runs out, uh, runs out to help an old Jewish man who falls down. Hans is whipped for this and he's called a Jew lover and now he worries what this is going to mean for his family. He realizes that there's going to be added suspicion on his family. And then next night, Max sneaks out and leaves and runs away. And Hans and Max, um, in talking about this, they had arranged to meet at a field in a few days. Uh, But when Hans gets there, there's only a note thanking him, telling him that he has done enough. Soon, uh, they they see the Gestapo coming down the street and they fear that they're coming for Hans because um, he helped the Jewish man who had fallen down. But instead, the Gestapo go to Rudy's house and they want to recruit Rudy into a new special Nazi training school for promising young men. Um, however, Rudy's family refuses to let him go. Shortly thereafter, Rudy's father and Hans are both called up for active duty in the military, though they had both been considered too old before they offended the Nazi party. Rudy plans to run away to find and kill Hitler, but Liesl convinces him that's not a good plan. <laughs> um, that night, Liesl sees Rosa sitting up and uh, holding Hans's accordion. This is right after Hans has, has left. Um, Hans is assigned to an air raid unit, which has to clean up after bombings, uh, back at Liesl's town, more Jews marched through. And, um, this time Liesl and Max run ahead of the group and they throw bread into the street for the Jews to find. Uh, there are more air raid warnings. And every time Liesl reads, uh, to the huddle group from different books, one day Rosa gives Liesl a book that Max had written for her and he had hidden uh, until it was the right time for Liesl to get it. And it's called the word shaker. And it's about the power of language. And it has vignettes inspired by Max and Liesl's lives. After Christmas, Liesl and Rudy go up to steal another book uh, from the mayor's library, and they find a plate of steel cookies that have been left out for Liesl. When Liesl, um, later on, when she goes back to read to, uh, to her neighbor, she is surprised that there's a grown man there, and it is her neighbor's son who is home. He um, had been in the German military, but he was wounded uh, in Russia, and he's been sent home to convalesce. And he also brought home news with him that his brother died in the war. 
uh, Hans had in his little air raid group, uh, he has one member of the group who doesn't like him. And one day that jerk makes Hans switch seats with him in the truck that they are riding in. There's an accident and that man dies while Hans gets a broken leg, which means that Hans is going to be sent back home to heal. There's another air raid back home. And when it's over, um, everyone comes out and they see that there's a downed plane burning in a field nearby. Liesl and Rudy go to it. And this is the second time that death sees Liesl as he takes the pilot's soul. Hans returns home. And death reveals uh, at this point that Liesl Street will soon be bombed and he will come collect the souls of most of the residents, but not Liesl's, because she will be in her family's basement working on a book about her own life. But before we get there, we jump back and we see Liesl's neighbor's son, the one who had just come back from Russia, he commits suicide uh, because of the horrors that he has seen. Uh, every time that Jews are marched through the town, which is happening more and more frequently, Liesl scans their faces to see if Max has been captured and is among them. And one time she sees Max being marched through town with the other um, Jewish prisoners. Liesl runs to him and says, uh, and he says that he was caught a few months ago. Liesl and Max are both whipped and Rudy runs up and he pulls Liesl away from the prisoners. Liesl goes back to the mayor's library. Um, this is a few days later, but instead of reading, she destroys the book because she realizes that it was words that sent Germany down this path. And she's angry at all words, feeling guilty for what she's done, though. She writes a note apologizing to the mayor's wife and explaining why she did it. A few days later, the mayor's wife visits and gives her a blank book of lined paper so that Liesl can write her own story with her own words, with their own power. Liesl works on her own writing every night. And one night, though there's no air raid siren, the bombs drop. Liesl is in the basement working on her book, and she's saved. But Hans and Rosa, Rudy, and everyone else in the street are killed. After she's, she is pulled from the rubble, Liesl is in shock, but she finds Rudy's body and kisses him. Then she finds Rosa and Hans, and she puts Hans's broken accordion next to his body. And as she's being led away from the rubble, she drops the book about her own life that she'd been writing. And death... There, together souls, sees that book and takes it with him. In an epilogue, death reveals that Liesl died just yesterday after a long life. She had three children and more grandchildren. After the bombing, she had been taken in by the mayor and the mayor's wife. Rudy's dad returned home from the war and reopened his shop and Liesl helped work there. After the war ended, Max uh, reunited with Liesl in that shop, so Max survived. Uh, when death takes Liesl's soul, he shows her the book that she had written and she asks if he understood it and death says that he can't understand all the contradictions in humans but they fascinate him in the end death says i am haunted by humans the end well done thank you that's a long summary it was long it's not our longest but it, it was longer than many <laughs> yes it's not a super like convoluted story just long yeah there's just a, a lot that happens and I will say, um, like, I'm hitting the main beats of the plot. There's a lot of the poetic language of death, like, ruminating about humans that just gets cut for time when I'm doing a plot right. summary. So, so I do recommend that listeners go and uh, read or listen to the actual uh, text here. I have, I have some questions for you about the style of this book. Um, so one of the things that stood out to me is uh, the narrator's voice is very unique. I can't remember a book that I've read. Um, and one of the things that this author does is uses um, like metaphor in um, very, I don't know what the word is, like very creative ways. It feels very stylized, the writing. And there were times when I was reading this and I would read uh, a metaphor and I would think, oh my gosh, that is beautiful. And then there were other times I was like, that makes no sense at all. <laughs> or, or you're forcing the issue a little. Yeah. And I I couldn't tell if it was like 
if I, I, I couldn't tell if it was just me, like I'm sure that people read this and they think it's the most beautiful thing they've ever read. Uh, and the story is amazing. Um, but the, there's something in the, in the style and like the heavy use of metaphor. Um, and often like, uh, juxtaposing things in, in metaphor that just it didn't really work for me. And sometimes it kind of like took me completely out of the story. And so it was kind of a weird, it was kind of a weird experience as far as that is concerned. And par- part of me was wondering, is it because it's death that's, um, that's narrating this and death is, I mean, obviously if you could speak to death, death would speak in a way that's not normal. And so part of me is wondering like, is it is it is he doing this on purpose, or are these all supposed to be just like beautiful metaphors? And for some reason, um, uh, they just don't speak to me. I don't know. It was it was the one thing about this book that I was like, oh, I just don't know how I feel about this. Well, Am it, it I draws totally attention crazy to in this? No, it, it's yes. a style of writing that draws attention to itself, and that almost automatically is going to pull you out of the story. And so is it going to draw attention to itself in a way that makes you kind of say, oh, that really hit the spot? Or is it drawing attention to itself in a way that makes you say, well, that's kind of distracting. And I think it does both um, in this case with this book. Now, um, I said death is the narrator. It's really like at the start of different sections of the book, death kind of presents a monologue. And then it shifts mm-hmm. into kind of Liesl's life and it doesn't do any of that more um, – evocative language i guess and so it's it's in those moments when you get the full death monologues i think that you have the experience that you're describing right there and i I think i shared a lot of that um like you said there are times where i'm like that was like presented in a way that was so imaginative and so different that i really quite enjoyed it and sometimes kind of like you said i was i was left like did that one work for me i'm not sure (laughs) yeah i mean there's beautiful writing in here there are so many phrases where i'm like oh man that is just so well done. And then there are other ones where I'm like, oh, I, I feel like you're either trying too hard or death is trying too hard. And it's hard for me to tell if it's the author who's trying too hard or if it's death who's trying too hard and that the author is really a genius. And I mean, this book sold like a bajillion copies and is you know universally admired. Uh, so it's hard for me to like fault the writer. Um, but it was the one thing in this book that I was like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Um, just because I, there were so many times where I was taken out of the story because I was trying, like in my mind, trying to figure out what a what a metaphor was was really meaning. Now, despite all that, I do think there's something really clever that happens with death as the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, because so often, I mean, how many stories have we done summaries for or talked about on this podcast where we talk about like we get the, the fish out of water, like the eyes in on this new world and we're following the new character to explain things. But in this instance, it's death talking about us, right? Like talking about uh-huh. humans and it highlights the uh, hypocrisies or the contradictions within humanity to see an outsider looking at us. And yes. we're used to seeing this trick done to give us eyes into a fantasy world or, you know, a science fiction future and just mm-hmm. like get catch us up and explain the rules of this world. And in this case, it's being done to like make us think about ourselves and the people we interact with and the way we feel about others. Um, and and it highlights all those contradictions that I think he successfully highlights these true contradictions that yes. I've seen others and I've seen in myself when it comes to humanity. 
So we have death looking at humanity and he's an outsider looking in and kind of thinking more deeply about humanity. And as we go through these characters, he kind of highlights a lot of the contradictions of humans, which leads to him in the end saying he's haunted by humans and like yes. his attempts to understand us. Were there any specific characters that kind of stood out to you as good examples of like encapsulating some of the contradictions in humanity? Yeah. So the first character that comes to mind is Rosa. Yes. Um, <laughs> who, <laughs> uh, she is so uh abusive in her language <laughs> um and yet you 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 gain and it's it's not it's not apparent from the very beginning but over the course of the novel you come to realize just how remarkable rosa is as a person and how much she loves like how fiercely she loves the people in her family and it's uh it's beautiful to see and when they take in max um just to see her like step up to the plate and do what needs to be done. And she never complains about it. Um, it's really remarkable. And so you have this really prickly, I mean the most prickly exterior that you can imagine. And the, and the descriptions of her physically are like, um, what did they say? She has a face like cardboard and, <laughs> and her body is like a sack of potatoes or something. Yeah. What did they call her? I think so. Is it that? Um, and and then this this really like both soft and yet uh like iron she has this iron will like she's she's a tough woman but she's also um like fiercely loyal to the people uh around her and uh it's it, it's contradiction but it's beautiful um so that's the first one that comes to mind in some ways she reminds me of and you may remember the name of this who is in um Anne of Green Gables, the um, uh, Matthew and oh, somebody's screaming Matthew's at me right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. Matthew's but sister. It, it, it's that kind of character, right? The like huge, tough as nail exterior, but then the heart of gold. And I think what works so well in this book is that the moments of the heart of gold, like they they come through quietly, and that it uh-huh. never really like makes a deal about them. I think sometimes, I mean, this is a character that we see over and over Marilla, and over again. Marilla. Marilla in popular culture uh the you know the the gruff exterior that's really hiding the, the golden core and if it's in a tv show or even in um sometimes in, in other stories like once you see the heart of gold but that becomes their defining characteristic and that does not happen to rosa <laughs> like we know it's there but it's no longer the defining characteristic where how oh, i'm trying to think of some examples of these where um like once you know that you know the mean old man really is a soft underneath like all you see him is as is, is as is the softy um yeah. but rosa kind of uh, home alone keeps the, the old man in yes. home yeah rosa keeps the tough exterior though like that's still her identity yeah. but we just know because of how she doesn't fight hans on bringing in max that she actually is a caring individual yeah i just feel like her her character is developed really slowly over the course of the novel um, and it's, it's different than like the old man at home alone where he, you know, he's bad and mean and scary all the way through until the very end when you realize, oh, he's, he's super nice. And here I thought he was mean this whole time. Um, but Rosa, it's like her, this, this soft golden, uh, interior is revealed so slowly that, um, it's almost, I don't know, I want to say it's like almost imperceptible. <laughs> there isn't a mm-hmm. moment. There's not one defining moment where you say, oh, she's really, she's really good. And all this time I've been fooled by her. Uh, it just, it's, it's more like 
how I think our relationships are in general, which is I think we get to know people um, more often kind of over time than we do by, you know, one dramatic moment. Yes. Yeah. And I agree with that. Um, and, and because of that, she is one of my favorite characters um, in this. Uh, yeah. Though I think there is still, I mean, so much love for Hans <laughs> immediately. Oh my like gosh. Just, How can you so not? Nice. <laughs> and the way his accordion playing gets described where um, like he makes mistakes and he just kind of smiles every time he makes uh, a mistake and you start to look forward to him making those mistakes because of the, the glitter in his eye every time that he hits the wrong note. Yeah. Um, and there's the description, like, uh, I can't remember what it was, but something along the lines of like, she could listen to every other accordion player on earth and never find one that played like him, <laughs> you know, something yeah. along those lines, uh, cause of the uniqueness of him. Uh, but he, his, um, it, you know, in, in some ways he gets presented as like this beaten down, almost emasculated man, but he does mm-hmm. a lot of the bravest things in the story as well. So I think that's another one of those, yes. um, contradictions, uh, that we see. Uh, huh um who else kind of fits those um i'm thinking of rudy yeah um like the the so the question would be is there contradiction also in rudy well i think you get the contradiction of the expectations in nazi germany that would be placed upon him the blonde haired blue-eyed great athlete and so so great that like literally he's being recruited to a special leadership school for the nazi party but his idol is jesse owens yes <laughs> yeah absolutely uh so so i think there's uh, not so much like within himself the way we see with rosa mm-hmm. but like within the the period or the hyster- historical moment that he's in mm-hmm. yeah i feel like rudy um like there's a lot of integrity in Rudy. Like he, he seems to be on the outside, what he is on the inside. Like the way that he, I feel like his actions are consistent throughout the novel. Like he consist he will consistently tell her, uh, you know, can I get a kiss now? Can I get a kiss now? Like there's something very, I feel like there's something very stable in his character. Um, mm-hmm. that maybe separates him from like, uh, Hans and, and uh, and Rosa who feel like it, it, it act in, in certain ways in certain circumstances and different ways in, in others. Yeah, I, I like Rudy. I, I, I love his, um, um, I love his loyalty. You can't think of any other. Diesel. I'm sorry. What was that? I love Rudy's loyalty to his, to, to Liesl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about uh, like moments of like thematic contradiction that we see like about humanity as a whole, if not as in inside of specific characters within the story? Well, the, I mean, the big one for me is, and I'm, I don't know if this is exactly, exactly where you're going, but it's one of the major, major themes of this book is um, people facing like in Jungian terms, like facing the dragon, but with dignity, <laughs> like th- this is just the worst. It's the worst kind of, world that you can imagine um you know like short of short of being in the in the camps it's 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 just there's a lot of yucky stuff going on <laughs> and to see like the dignity with which hans faces um really an overwhelming situation like there's nothing that he can do to really help the jews but he's going to like give the old man some bread or he's going to go paint over the the swastikas on the Jewish shopkeepers' uh, stores. 
And um, I mean, that's to me, there's just something so beautiful in, in like this indomitable spirit and willingness to not ignore the, like the horrors of existence, but to face them with dignity. And uh, I feel like he does that. I feel like Rosa does that in her own way. I feel like Rudy does that in his own way. And I feel like Liesl does that in her way. And, and, and this becomes one of the, the main themes of the book is uh, the power of words to kind of fight, right. to fight against this chaotic uh, dragon uh, of existence. But also that the power of words are what launched, you know, Germany down this path. Right. <laughs> like, like Mein Kampf is a major uh, part of this, the, the rallies uh, and the kind of, you know, the speeches, mm-hmm. um, you know, that happens. So you, you get that contradiction in, in and of itself, like right. the strength of it's words. It's a tool. Yeah, the words are a tool and they can be used for horrible destruction or they can be used for the most beautiful uh, kind of uh, expressions of hope. And, and that's what Liesl comes to understand. And there's a moment when she rips up all the words and she says, I'm done with words because I've seen the, the, the damage they can do. And then she realizes, yes, but I can also create with words and I can create something beautiful. And I can, in my own way, in my own little corner, uh, my own dark corner of this world, I can um, create light with words. And I mean, it's, it's no surprise that this book has sold so, so many copies because, um, I mean, one thing that I think we've learned as we've done this podcast is there are a lot of authors who like to write books about people who love books and people who love (laughs) books will read the heck out of books about people who love books. (laughs) Um, and this is, this certainly falls in that camp. Um, but I, I think that it's a, I think it's a valuable book. Yeah, and I mean, this idea about the power of words, it, have you ever read um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World Revisited, which is a set of essays on his book, Brave New World? <laughs> it's so funny that you asked me that because just this week, I um, I finished a book and I was thinking, I need to read a new book. And I thought, I've never read Brave New World. And I went to the library and I held it in my hands. And then I thought, oh, I think I'm going to read something else. <laughs> <Put it down. laughs> Well, well, Brave New World Revisited is a set of essays that he wrote about uh, kind of some of the ideas and themes uh-huh. that are in Brave New World. Um, but in there, he he has a section um, about propaganda under a dictatorship. He also uh-huh. has another section about propaganda in a democracy um, and, you know, the issues of words being used kind of uh, for negative ends. Uh-huh. But he uses a term called herd poisoning uh, to kind of get at the way that words can be used to make like a group act in a way that individuals would not sure um you know kind of be caught up in the pathos of the moment um and and lose their sense of individuality uh Mm -hmm. and i I think it's a really strong uh interpretation or analysis of why words you know and language matter so much and Uh how something like um you know nazi germany can can happen but at the same time he also has the whole section about the you know the, the threat of uh you know words in in a democracy like like and he's not you know he, he's not calling for censorship he's just saying we need to be more aware of words and we need yeah. to think a little more deeply and critically and analytically um about about words yeah um yeah that's a good point 
Oh, what about, also what you said about uh, Book Thief, about, you know, books about people who love books and, you know, yes. people who love books love to read those books. It made me think about how um, if if uh, there's there's a film with any kind of um, traction that is about the power of filmmaking, you can bet it's going to be nominated for an Academy Oh, yeah, Award. absolutely. <laughs> La La Land, uh, The Artist. Um, yes. <laughs> Goes, goes on and on, you know, the list of Academy Awards of Hollywood kind of saying, yeah, this one really nailed how important we are. We need to, yeah. we need to recognize it. But I mean, you think about book, books about books. And so, so we've talked about this. We did Fangirl recently, Anne of Green Gables. But really, I mean, it, it must be said, the, the great book about books is the Quixote, right? Um, which is like a pro the prologue of Don Quixote is a prologue about writing prologue. And the whole book is about, is a book about books and it's a book about reading. And so it's, this is not a, some new idea, some new like postmodern meta thing. Um, it's been going on for a very, a very long time. People have been writing books about how, or, uh, you know, plays within plays is, yes. is super common too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. It has not, it seems it was not invented. In artists enjoy doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. metatextuality is is like it gets highlighted with postmodernism but it's always been a thing yeah well everything that the postmoderns think is cool uh, that actually is cool um came from the <laughs> from early modern early modern times uh i think <laughs> i thought you were gonna say it was don quixote and i was gonna say todd some of your bias is showing <laughs> no no i mean i think other people did it well i think shakespeare did a lot of um a lot of great stuff and about the same time i mean shakespeare and Cervantes are uh, contemporaries and they did a lot of similar things with language and storytelling yeah um one other thing that this book does that's interesting to me is it um sets the table for what's coming like it warns you rudy's gonna die yes <laughs> um and, <laughs> when i read that i was oh, like and, no no i know how this book is gonna end now and there's like 50 pages left and now i just have to well i think he first says that in like the first third of the book he says rudy dies in two years oh, um but then when there's 50 pages left, he, that's when he says everyone else is going to die too, except for Liesl. <laughs> um, but I, to me, that's always an interesting technique uh, to, you know, give away those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way some authors do this is through prophecies and then it becomes like, are they going to be able to fight the prophecy or is it just going to come? And it always just comes because they fight it inevitably. Mm-hmm. That's like the go-to move with prophecies these days. Um, <laughs> but then also it made me think of like Lost where – like we we knew the character of John Locke had been in a wheelchair, and then when he got to the end, he wasn't. And we started to get these flashbacks. And in every flashback, there was a moment where it was like, "Oh, is this explaining why he's in a wheelchair?" Because he's walking around for most of the flashbacks, and uh-huh. it kind of like left the audience. It actually increased the tension. Um, I, I think there's the fear of of doing that would remove all tension, but actually increase the tension for the audience of like, "Well, is this going to be the moment?" And so, like with Rudy, when we're told early on he's going to die in two years, you start to wonder like when he's getting in the fights with bullies or when the Gestapo come by and say we want to him for a special unit within the Nazi party. Mm. Like, oh, oh, is this? Uh, and then it's actually like his his family's efforts to save him is what had him there on the street when the bombs fell. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the way that all these people die at the end of this book? Well, it made me sad. I'm not sure what you're going for, Todd. <laughs> what just seems so like senseless, like meaningless. Well, I think you that's know? that's part of the point of war, right? Yes. I mean, that's when we're getting from death's point of view. Absolutely. At this point, he's talking about like being tired of yeah. doing his job. I love those um, descriptions of like how busy he was, and he'll say like, "Man, 1942." That was such a 
busy year (laughs) and, and you realize, um, yeah, that, that was one of the, one of the things that death did as a narrator, um, was just to uh, highlight in a way that's different than just saying like 6 million Jews died or, you know, X number of soldiers died. Um, but to, but to think of it from the point of view of death, who has, who has to somehow make it to all of those places. And he's, he's and when he just, starts talking about the places, like when the brother comes back from Russia and he's like, Oh, Russia. <laughs> frantic, yeah. He's frantically trying to scoop up all of these things. And he'll talk about the way that he'll scoop up a, a child. That's different than, uh, than the way that he'll, he'll deal with an adult. Um, I just thought there was, there was real beauty in some of those descriptions. Um, but in, in this book, that's so much about the word and we use words to create meaning. And so, um, you see Liesl using words to, to create meaning, to fight kind of the senselessness of, of, of what's going on around her. And then the death is just so unceremonious, right? Like you have these characters that we love and, and we've come to, to know over the course of 500 pages and then they're just snuffed out like in an instant the, some bomb gets dropped on them. There was no uh, air raid warning and, and then they're gone. And, and you like, you want to hope like, you know, maybe they're alive. Maybe there's some last gasp, something, and they're just not, they're just gone in, in a, in a, in a heartbeat. It's so sad. <laughs> the end of this book is really, really sad. And it, I feel like it, um, it affected me when I was reading it a lot. You were going to say something. Uh, yeah. So I saw the movie not having read, read the book. And so, um, I was doing the same thing. You were hoping like in the book we're told, and I can't remember how the, how the movie handles exactly. It's been years since I actually watched the movie. And so I can't remember if we were like forewarned, everyone's about to die, mm-hmm. uh, the way we are in the book. Um, but the, I remember it like seeing the actors, you know, bodies there um, on the screen. Like it was, it, it definitely hit me. Um, particularly, um, I think it's let me just double check before i say this uh the the cast of the film um yeah it's uh jeffrey rush plays hans and he does such a good job um <laughs> as hans and and the actress who plays rosa is her name is emily watson and uh they both like just when i was reading the book i, I know some of this is because i'd seen the movie before but like i couldn't imagine anyone else uh-huh. <laughs> like <laughs> playing playing these characters um yeah emily watson does such a good job of playing the tough as nails rosa but also like the scene when she goes to the school and chews her out but then tells her that max woke up in the movie like it was so affecting and to see like her happiness and joy in being able to share some happiness with liesel mm. uh they, that actress really nailed it and jeffrey rush i mean he you know he's gonna give a good performance yeah. <laughs> but imagine him as a kindly old man who plays the accordion and tries to be nice uh in the face of utter evil and then you see him die and it's just and when she lays the accordion next to him i remember being like oh this this movie <laughs> it's it's getting yeah. to me yeah it really is it's i i told somebody today oh one of the german professors on campus i said oh i just read the book thief and he's like man that's a tough book <laughs> <laughs> and i said yeah it is um yeah this was a really interesting experience reading this book was a very interesting experience for me because there were there was the stuff with the style where i was like "Ah, i'm not really sure about this and then i just fell in love with the characters i think liesel is a a, an awesome character 
we've we've spoken I want to come back to Lizzo in a people, moment though. Spoken yeah. a lot more about the people around her. Um but I I just I cared so much about all of these characters and then to have them all just snuffed out at the end as, like they were. Um it's like it feels almost like um like uncaring uh, on the part of the author. You know, like how can you do this? <laughs> like can't you give them a you know something a, a better death than that? Then it's like, let's all go to sleep. And then a huge bomb gets dropped on our street and then we're all dead. Like, there has to be, you know, but, but there's not. And, and I think, uh, and, and I think that, I mean, with the setting, that's the point. Exactly. Right? When it's set yes. in World War II. Yeah. 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 Um, I do want to take a little time to dig into Liesl, but one other thing about the structure of the book that I thought was, it, it made it a unique experience for me is you have, the omniscient narrator of death who like has this other perspective from everyone else. And he's writing from the future, right? Like he's, he's going back and talking about these events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have Liesl's point of view where she's this nine year old in this. And, and so like, she doesn't catch on that her father was taken away because he was a communist. Right. But then there's our readers, historical context and our ability to like create the meaning from the mm-hmm. pieces that were being given. So there's just, for me, it was a very unique experience to have all these different, um, you know, this this mix of omniscience and a lack of understanding and our own reader interpretation uh, to make sense of what's going on before Liesl catches up. Uh, it, it was unlike other books that I've read. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much in this book that's done right that I feel compelled to give the benefit of the doubt on the on the style and either attribute it to um, genius because it's it's death and there's there's something really interesting going on and like the death would see the world differently um not being human uh but trying to express himself in in human terms that would you know sometimes work and sometimes wouldn't or it's just you know like sometimes you come uh, in the face of a, a great artist and and it just doesn't speak to you uh maybe like it does to other people and I have to attribute um, some of my hangups with the style of this book to one of those two things. I can't in good conscience say, I think it's because Zuzak doesn't know how to write because there are so <laughs> many, because there are so many other evidences that he knows exactly what he's doing that I feel like, um, like, you know, he, he deserves the benefit of the doubt on this. Yeah. All right, uh, we're we're kind of nearing probably the end of our length for this podcast, so let's dig in for a few minutes and talk about Liesel, uh mm-hmm. before we wrap up. Um, she, for me, is one of the great characters <laughs> that we've been given, uh, or, or you know, that we had the chance to explore in this. It, it, it's so interesting um, the way her her acts of rebellion take shape, but then also um, the way that she can be obedient when she needs to be like, there's just, again, like talk about the contradictions. Like she is so obedient about Max and not telling anyone, not telling Rudy and understanding, um, you know, the gravity of that situation. But then she's also like, we'll go steal books (laughs) from the mayor's library all the time. When they steal steal from that poor kid on his bike. Oh yeah. That's, that was rough. They they lay an ice trap for uh, a, a bike messenger that they know is going to have food. <laughs> he totally crashes on his bike, and they wonder if he's dead. And then they're like, and then they steal the basket, and then they have the debate about what do we do with the basket? Yes. <laughs> like after they eat everything, he yeah. Has. So she's not like she's not all goodness, and I mean she's good, uh, but but she's not um, she's not without uh, flaws. Um, 
but yeah, one of, one of the things that I think is so interesting about Liesl is her relationship. So much about her, as is the case, I think, with a lot of great protagonists that we've talked about, is so much of her is developed through her relationships with other people. So you see um, her, the way that she interacts with Hans and how much he loves her and how much she adores him. And it says at the end when she's when she's mourning over Rudy and Rosa and and Hans and all the people on their street, it's like she Hans has a, a special place in her heart. And you think, of course, um, she's good because she loves Hans and we know Hans and we love Hans. Uh, and so I think it uh, kind of puts us on her side. But then you see the way that she interacts with Rosa and how she kind of takes the the beatings, um, the these verbal be- beatings from Rosa. And she kind of knows that uh, that Rosa's good. Um, even though I think w- along with us, she comes to realize that over time, um, not necessarily as a, as an immediate revelation. Um, I think her relationship with Rudy is really interesting uh, in the way that she withholds affection from him. Um, the way that, the way, the way that she mirrors some of the, the treatment that she gets from Rosa, she projects onto Rudy. Um, and that her relationship with Rudy is also kind of verbally abusive, but they also love each other. Um, I think she learns that from Rosa uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, and then her relationship with the mayor's wife. And, and the mayor's wife is another character that we haven't really talked about at all, but I think it's fascinating. Um, that she Haunting. Has- yes. She's haunting to me. Like, like when Death says, he, uh, you know, he's haunted by humans, I'm going to be haunted by Ilsa, the mayor's wife. Yeah. Like we get so little of her story, um, but she leaves the window open. She takes this again, like this verbal beating uh, from f- from Liesel, and then she immediately turns around and like leaves the window open. And this and this is a conversation that I had with my kids. So they said, uh, "So what's this book about?" It's called The Book Thief. And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "What's it about?" And I said, "It's about a little girl who steals books." And they said, "That's bad." And I said, "Well." <laughs> It's, it's kind of complicated. Um, I said she loves... And she gets permission to steal the books. I said she loves to read, and she doesn't have any books, and there's not a library that she can go to. And so she steals books because she wants to read so badly. And can you imagine if you love books so much that you'd be willing to steal uh, just to be able to read a book? And they're like, oh. And then I said, and she actually, the lady that gives her... The, the lady that she's stealing from, she actually lets her steal the books. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah. And sometimes she gives her cookies too. And they're like, that's a weird book, dad. <laughs> um, but people are weird and they act in, in strange ways. And uh, the mayor's wife is, is one of those uh, people who uh, I think just her actions are interesting. <laughs> and her relationship well, and with Lisa is interesting. I think... Um also like her her depression and uh-huh. um you know her her emotional struggles and mental health struggles that we're seeing i think it's supposed to be foreshadowing a lot of what's going to be coming post world war 2 like she's uh-huh. carrying the scars of world war 1 and it's it's a warning signal um yeah. for for what i mean so most of the characters we meet in this die obviously but i think it is uh you know this larger warning signal that you know these wars they don't just pass right they it's 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 not there's winners and losers and, and everyone carries on. Yeah. It's, you know, she, she is broken because of the loss of her son in world war one. Yeah. There's weight. And, uh, and they, they, 
that weight is felt for a very long time. And it's hard to make sense of. And there's just so much of so much of World War II. I mean, a lot of the philosophy that comes out of World War II is is people just trying to make sense of what happened. And there's so much about saying, there is no sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's a huge it. amount of uh, of it. It's just saying there's there's no meaning. You know, traditional structures they they don't have any inherent meaning to them. Yeah, we know. No, no, nothing is going to tell us what's going on because look at what humans will do to other humans. Yeah, um, Goombrecht at, at Stanford he talks about uh, what he calls a period of latency, like right after World War II. Um, in the immediate years that followed, it was like everything was quiet, and even even like the intellectual world was kind of quiet in the, in the immediate years after the war, it was later, like in the sixties when everybody like finally found their voice again. <laughs> um, but for a while there was, it was like the whole world was in shock. What in the world did we just do? <laughs> Cause that was bananas. And, uh, and a lot of, I mean, the, but, but you know, some of the greatest thought ever, <laughs> came out of this uh, of the struggle i think of of trying to figure out what's going on what's going on there and why why how is it that that humans who in general we seem to treat each other pretty well but every once in a while we we show ourselves just how capable we are of doing really really horrible things and and what's up with that um and i think part of that's in this in this book yeah, I think that's one of the, I mean, the, the major themes for this. And I mean, this book is um, marketed as young adult. I'm sure it's getting used in high schools. Uh, and I think being able to kind of wrestle with and acknowledge these inconsistencies, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, the, within within human nature, it, I, I think this book is a great tool um, for introducing some of those deeper and harder to get a handle on discussions. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's good. It's a good book. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a, a very, very good book. Um, one final thing I wanted to ask, uh, the epilogue, when we find out that Liesl had a long life and was married, mm-hmm. what did you think of that? <laughs> Part of me was curious of just, uh, like what the historical, I get the, I had a sense that this was somehow based on something real um i mean it's specifically like that there was the liesel was a, a real person um and i have no i have no basis for that <laughs> except that it feels real like it feels very it feels very authentic um and so uh the the epilogue felt um i felt like it fit uh mm-hmm. in that in that vein, like that, that would be a way for us to come to have this story is if, if somebody actually was alive and they said, yeah, this is what happened to me. And so I, it felt authentic in that way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that was what you were getting at. Like, did, did it feel like it was kind of out of place in the, in the story? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Like I remember it both in the movie, when we get to the epilogue, it was kind of like, well, I'm glad she lived, but it just was like, so it, it was simultaneously, it felt like too much and too little information about the rest of her life. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> like, here's a glimpse. Yeah. It's like, well, I, I'd like a little more <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't know how to quite um, encapsulate, I guess, my feelings about it. And, and again, like everything about this book 
has been so well received and I understand the power of it that I, it feels weird for me to like call it out on something yes. like what you were saying. Like maybe this is just me having a weird hang up, but I, I either wanted more information uh, or, or less, I guess <laughs> about it. I mean, particularly I even just did a quick Google search. Like who does she marry? Cause we know Max is live at the end. And I remember leaving the theater and saying, Oh, it never really said if that was Max. And I think in the, in the movie, like you scan through family photos, mm-hmm. but it's like just vague enough that you can't quite tell. Yeah. <laughs> like, was, was that supposed to be Max? Um, and so I did a quick Google search, uh, just book thief, whom does Liesl marry? And I got a half million results of people debating this. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, cause the book does not make it clear, uh, you know, at all. It's just, she got married and she lived in Australia. She, or she died in Australia at least. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, in doing this quick Google search, it does say that Marcus Zuzak has stated that she did not marry Max, but that's all he'll say about it. Interesting. <laughs> about the rest of Liesl's life. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I I did not feel the same hang up about it as you did. I understand what you're saying. Um, and I think that you've expressed it well in saying that it feels like like too much and too little at the same time. So the the alternative would be to just say, you know, like end of end of story. When when she, when the mayor's wife takes her in, and then, and then, and then the mayor's wife took her in, and then that's it. Um, but then we don't get. I mean, the I do enjoy the death conversation with Liesl at the end, so I understand why that's where we yeah. go. <laughs> I mean, I I, th- I feel like you have because it's death uh, narrating the whole thing, and he it has to end. With he it has to end with her death. And so it's going to end when when she dies. And Zuzak decided that she's not going to die during the war, but she's going to live through it. And um, I love I I thought I thought it was cool when he said, you know, like yeah, I just saw her a couple days ago, and um, I don't know this. I don't even know how to express what I felt when he said that. But um, I mean, this was written in two thousand five, two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'll give you the exact year in a second. Let's see, 2005. 2005, but it feels like when he says, I just saw her two days ago, that I'm not thinking two days ago in 2005. I'm thinking two, th- two days ago in 2018. Like it feels... Yeah, when, when you're reading it. Yeah, it feels like it comes all the way to me. And I like that. Um, I like mm-hmm. that the epilogue takes this this thing that happened you know, in the time of our grandparents and then uh, brings it all the way up to two days ago. And I, I'm sure that, you know, like on an infinite time scale, at some point somebody will realize, will read this and it won't feel like it, it was really two days ago. Like they'll say, you know, that the book will feel old to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, the book doesn't feel old. It feels like it was written two days ago. Yeah, I like that. And I like that. I do also wish we got like in the, in my feeling like too little, I want to know what she did, right? <laughs> like, did she become a great author? Like how <laughs> like, I want to know more of what, what she accomplished. But does it matter? But I, does any of that matter? No, that's not the story that's being told. <laughs> it just like, it, it left me wanting that. And it felt weird to be, I think it felt weird to be wanting that additional information about Liesl's life when the book was about Liesl from age nine to 12. <laughs> Or nine to fourteen, or whatever, however old right. she is when, uh, you know, when the war ends. Like it's that window of years, and it, and then we I, because of the epilogue, I was left with this kind of like yearning for like a, 
either more to be filled in or just for it to be so vague I didn't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was just for me it hit a spot where I'm like I I just want more. <laughs> I mean, what you know what what would it say? I mean, it, it we're, I don't know. I don't we're know. given what we're given, right? <laughs> I mean, is it going to yeah. say like, and then she became a worldwide best-selling author because she wrote this thing? Yeah. It's like we know yeah. that she's an amazing author because because she is. You know, like we've seen her ability uh, to use words to create meaning uh, in really powerful ways, both for herself and for the people around her, the people in the um, in the in the shelters uh, when they're being bombed. Um, oh, those are great scenes, by the way. I, oh, I think yeah. we kind of glossed over this in our discussion of of both the book and of Liesl, but her role during those bombings, like it is so amazing to read. And also the performance in the movie, I recommend seeing the movie almost just for those scenes in the, in there, like the way you're able to see everyone else's reaction to her Mm -hmm. as a storyteller. It it was like, it's something that still lingers with me, even though at this point it's, you know, it's been years since, (laughs) since I saw the movie Um, that definitely still sticks with me. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't I don't need for him to tell me like how many books she published and a stuff because I know that she's amazing with words and that whatever she did is is great, you know, like we get we get this really broad sketch uh, and it's enough to bring the story all the way to me and then and then for him to say, you know, I saw her 2 days ago. Um I, don't know, I like I like the way that it ends. The more I think about it, the more I like it. And I feel like maybe the more you think about it, the less you like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think at this point, uh, you know, 180 episodes in, we've come to accept that, you know, a work is a work and a reader is a reader. And uh, not everyone's going to have the same reactions <laughs> to those things. <laughs> and as much as you and I agree on, it's okay for every once in a while <laughs> for us to come yeah. out on different sides of something. <laughs> Cool. Uh, but uh, despite your uh, initial kind of reservations that we touched on with some of the the language and my kind of res- reservations with some of the epilogue, I still give this a very hearty two thumbs. Oh up. yeah, it's and definitely I- like <laughs> to- top shelf A list. It's a very yes. very good book. Um, but you know, like uh, was it the Phantom guys that were that were talking about like a perfect. Oh, perfect stories. Perfect stories, yeah. And yeah, I was thinking, was like, like, I don't know if there is one that exists, right? <laughs> like, there's always... Well, yeah, they were saying there's a perfect movie out there where you wouldn't change a thing. And so often when, like, we do these discussions of great stories and great characters, we begin with, like, well, let's pick a few nits and then let's carry on to what we right. love about it. Um, and so you're saying, like, is there anything out there that's really perfect? Well, see, I think those are two different things. Like, one thing is to say, um, is it perfect? And the other is to say, would you not change a thing? Right. right? <laughs> yeah. I I don't think that this book is perfect, but I also wouldn't touch a th- a thing. I would just I just let let it stand as it is cuz I think it's amazing. Um and I would say the I would say the same thing about a lot of the things that I love. I I'm I I would not be excited or confident in any way in my ability to go in and try to think that I could do anything better. Um, even as I can look at something and say, no, maybe that didn't quite land right. Or I have some questions about this. I don't quite understand why this happened the way that it did. Um, so. Yeah. And I mean, so often when we like touch on these, these things that bug us in the end, we just kind of say, I don't care. <laughs> like I still <laughs> yes. love it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it kind of bugs me in the moment. 
if I think back on it and do a deep dive analysis, uh, it still kind of bugs me, but I don't care. Yeah. And I would say <laughs> I even about my, my big net. Yeah, well, my big net, which was the, you know, like the use of metaphor, there are so many instances where it's like jaw-droppingly amazing that the few times that it's not, I, I, you know, <laughs> like I'm not so sure that it's not me. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know what? The epilogue is certainly not going to stop me from revisiting this book at some point in the future. Uh, and I want to thank Patron Mark for requesting that we uh, tackle um, The Book Thief as a novel on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate all the suggestions that we get, and this this was a great one. Yes, it was. I'm glad that I finally got to this. I felt like it was uh, looming out there for me, and I, I finally got it. It's like a like a butterfly collector or something like I finally got, or a bird watcher. Like I finally, I finally got, got the one that, that, that I've been hoping for for a long time. So this is good. Yeah. I will say the blessing and the curse of doing this weekly podcast is we get to some of those, but there's also ones that are out there where it's like, well, we're not doing it anytime soon. So I'm just not going to get to that text, <laughs> be it a film or TV show. I mean, and also there's just so much, I mean, there's so much storytelling out there to consume. There are always going to be those things on our, on our to-do list and doing this weekly podcast helps to get to some of them. But if it's not on our schedule there, I know there are books out there where I'm like, I should get to that. But mm, if we get to it in the podcast, yeah. I will get to it then. <laughs> Anna, Karen, Anna, we're looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. Go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review that really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go back and check out episode number 23 when we talked about the graphic novel mouse or episode number 169 when we talked about the graphic novel, the arrival, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Disminute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners. And we would love for you to drop by and say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Mr. Man- no, we're just going to call you manager. Okay, Mr. Manager. All right, I'm Mr. Man. No, just Man. All right. Okay, here we go. <clears throat>